You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, 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 episode 100 with Elisa Rash. So I'm pretty glad that it worked out this way. We have a special episode for 100 because it's kind of a milestone. I'm excited to celebrate 100 of these episodes with you all and to do so with Elise for her second time on the podcast. Elise doesn't really need an introduction, but I'll, I'll introduce her anyways. Elise is a nutrition therapist based in California with over 40 years of experience. She specializes in eating disorders, intuitive eating, and health at every size. Obviously, she specializes in in intuitive eating because you recognize her name as the co-author of Intuitive Eating, which is now in its fourth edition, the Intuitive Eating Workbook, the Intuitive Eating Card Deck, the Intuitive Eating Workbook for Teens, and the Intuitive Eating Journal. She's also a chapter contributor to the Handbook of Positive Body Image and published journal articles, print articles, blog posts, have done you know, just a couple of speaking engagements and a handful of podcast interviews and just, you know, appeared on the media here and there. No biggie. Wall Street Journal, NPR, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Associated Press, Huffington Post, etc., 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 etc. At least it's a big deal, guys. She's going to share a little bit about some of the new stuff coming out, new editions of her books and workbooks. So stay tuned for that. I think at the end, I'm very excited to have this conversation inserted in the lineup of podcast episodes right now, because there's been so much criticism of intuitive eating. And and when I mean by criticism of intuitive eating, I, I mean, people who actually respect and understand intuitive eating. I'm not talking about the people who say intuitive eating, it means like a diet that just takes into account your intuition. Those people don't understand intuitive eating. Honestly, we're not even going to entertain those arguments. But there's been some you know, pretty thoughtful criticism of intuitive eating, and we've covered plenty of it on the podcast to really work on our critical thinking and increase our curiosity. So I preface this, all of this again by saying, take all this with a grain of salt. Just because I say it, just because one of my guests say it, it doesn't mean that it's true. I think that you need to learn the information, hear everything that you have to hear about it, and then make your own conclusion. But what I really appreciate about circling back and talking directly with Elise about some of the criticisms is that we can go to the source and see what does the intuitive eating person say about this. So we talk about some of the criticisms that have been circling, the ones that we've talked directly about on the podcast and some that we've talked about in the email list. If you're part of the email newsletter list, some on social media, you're part of that sort of like sub conversation going on. So if you've been wondering about intuitive eating and you have questions about it and you understand the basics of it, but then sort of branching off, you're either not sure about it or you've heard some of the criticisms and you're not sure about that, this is the episode for you. So let's just jump right in. Hi. Hello. Thanks for coming back. This is fun. Oh, this is one of my favorite places to be. I'll come back every time you want me. So, Oh, I love it. We should hang out. I, we live on yeah. two opposite sides of the country, which is very sad for me. But welcome back. I'm excited to do this. I'm excited to, to talk more about intuitive eating and hear some of the changes that are going on. I know that the things that, that I had in mind to talk about, which we don't even have to talk about, but it's very interesting from my seat because sometimes we produce an episode and it talks about intuitive eating and incorporating more fear foods and challenging yourself and hunger fullness satiety all those 
all that good stuff. And then I get some criticism. I don't, I don't even love the word criticism. It's not necessarily critical, but it's just sort of like questions on, and what about this? And what about this? Something that I love about the community that this podcast has created is that people are super critical thinkers and that they're not Mm going to take anything at face value. They're not going to just say, oh, Rachel said this, Elise said this. Well, because we're obviously on first name basis here for all of us. (laughs) Yes, of course. And, uh, you know, they said this, well, yeah, for sure. Then it's true. And I need to incorporate it into my life. Everybody here is pretty much, you said this. Okay, let me see. Does it fit into my life? Does it make sense? What's the evidence to point to that this makes sense? And so I love the questions that I've been getting, but it's very interesting. So we'll get those that set of criticism. And then I'll go to the other side and talk to some other people and see what they have to say. And then I'll get the criticism from the other side. So a lot of the questions that perhaps will come today is from getting a whole pool of criticism toward the information that we've presented in the last couple of years. And I think a lot of it is just valid questions about the information that we're talking about. Well, and also, Rahel, I think that people hear things out there in the universe, on social media, mm-hmm. uh, people that really aren't trained in intuitive eating, who just have, a, yeah. you know, they read the book, they know the 10 principles, and then they just teach them, which, fine, but it doesn't deal with the depth and the nuance of intuitive eating. And then someone hears something that's said there, and it's not really what the true meaning of intuitive eating is. So mm-hmm. it may come from this, you know, from podcasts, but it also may come from other places that they're bringing in their questions. So yeah, sure. for Let's- sure. I think originally the name intuitive eating was so compelling for people. And then once it got more of a household name, then people are like, well, actually I don't like it for this reason. And for that reason, and what's with the intuition thing? Cause all of these, and I'll just sort of throw things out as we talk, but all their criticisms. And now they're like, well, I don't like the term intuitive eating. I like, and then they put in whatever, whatever new term they like, mindful eating or in tune eat. I don't know. Just they make up their own things, which it's like, okay, well, great. You can rename it, whatever works for you. But I think you're right that a lot of people read it or, or don't, and they reduce it to either one idea or even just the 10 ideas. And then they just say this intuitive eating is the 10 principles and that's the end of the story but it's really the beginning of the story i I like the way you said that and i like the word reduce it's reductionist to do that it takes a lot more um studying of it understanding it having more insights and as i say into the nuances and so Mm -hmm. i love having an opportunity to you know tell the truth about it yeah. So one thing that I think is obviously coming up for you and and for me as well, I think you can talk a little bit more about some of the, the new additions coming out. But this idea it, within the sub-community of eating disorder recovery. And so intuitive eating has been wildly helpful for so many people across the disordered eating spectrum. And then for people who fall under the category of eating disorder, and then they're working toward recovery, they have a lot of trouble following the principles as is. And I think that then they come to the conclusion that intuitive eating isn't good for eating disorder recovery. And I think that obviously all of those statements are super simple and and it's never simple. It's always nuanced. It's always like, let's, let's unpack. We can't make these kinds of statements, but Let's talk a little bit more about intuitive eating in eating disorder recovery, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like, and maybe bust some myths with that. And one of my pet peeves is this very simple, as you say, simple statement, can't use intuitive eating in recovery for eating disorders. Well, gosh, that means that you're looking at intuitive eating as the hunger fullness diet, you know, Mm -hmm. or the hunger treatment and of course people who are not nourished who have been you know restricting who are not uh, getting enough food in their bodies aren't going to give them accurate hunger signals their orphanless signals because they're typically have gastroparesis if they've been restricting and they're well below their set point weight so everything's slowed down in their gi tract mm-hmm. something that i believe about that and i don't think i've ever read it but i think it makes sense is that i think that instinctual part of the brain just slows the gi tract so that you can pull out more nutrients from this small amount of food that you're eating anyway oh, so it ends up yeah huh. so it, 
I mean, it's the opposite of, you know, like having diarrhea, everything going through you and nothing gets absorbed. So this is slowly going through. But the problem is with the slowed stomach emptying and the gastroparesis, which is what that is, sometimes people are full all the time. They're not getting hunger signals. So tell someone who's recovering from anorexia, yeah, just eat when you're hungry. Well, that's criminal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's like kind of never... Right. Or, or talking about their fullness. Well, they're, they're full all the time. I'm full. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to eat or someone who's had um, bulimia, who has been restricting during the day, binging and purging. Well, their GI tract isn't working, you know, properly and their hunger fullness signals are not accessible. I mean, for years and years, they haven't been in touch with them. So when I hear you can't use intuitive eating with um, eating disorder recovery, it's like, wait a minute, what are we talking about? There are many aspects of intuitive eating that you can start with day one. The first principle, reject the diet mentality, which we are probably going to rename reject diet culture because update it that way. We're We're doing a second edition of the intuitive eating workbook and making quite a few revisions in that. So Yes, let's talk about what, you know, diet culture does and how it's a an instigator of eating disorders. Let's talk about that impact of influencers. Let's talk about, you know, the the dangers of uh, diet, of the diet world and how it affects self-esteem and how it affects mental health. I mean, that can be talked about right away if a person's open to it, of course talking about making peace with food. So many people with eating disorders have very restrictive thoughts about food. Even if they're someone who is eating well beyond fullness, they're often having you know restrictive thoughts and then it's like, what the hell? And then eating beyond fullness. Well, let's talk about the science of food. Let's talk about the fact that all foods are made out of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen if they're protein. So, you know, foods are all basically breaking down before they get absorbed out of our GI tract to these very simple molecules. Let's talk about the science of the brain, how the brain truly only operates on carbohydrates and people are out there being carb phobic. So let's talk about making peace with food. You can talk about that day one. In fact, you need to, to help people mm-hmm. have motivation to make change in their eating. Well, that's, those are huge parts of intuitive eating. Satisfaction. Not everybody's ready to say, I, I deserve satisfaction in my eating. Often people have been very restrictive, have restricted satisfaction in every aspect of their lives. They just start feeling very undeserving. They are possibly people who, when they were very young, weren't getting their emotional needs met. And so they pushed away their needs because it was just too painful to have needs. And they didn't consciously push them away. They just kind of, from a psychic level, they got pushed away. And so they feel that they don't deserve to have satisfaction. But for some other people who have eating disorders, they haven't had satisfaction so long and that's so appealing. So to talk about, you know, the nuances of satisfaction with someone, respecting the body. I mean, we could go through so many of the principles, in fact, probably all of them besides the hunger and fullness, those are such an important part of intuitive eating and very applicable in the treatment of eating disorders. And in fact, in all these years, I've been doing this for now 41 years. And my first my first Amazing. job, uh, I started private practice. Two years later, my first job in the field, I would say, was at an eating disorder treatment program, local one. And so I've been working with eating disorders for almost 40 years. And um, in all these years, all the people who have come to me lately, some of them are going to places where they're teaching intuitive eating, like the wonderful within treatment program that's based on intuitive eating. But so many of them are coming out of treatment. They're fully nourished. There's their, you know, behaviors have changed. They're no longer restricting. They're no longer purging. Any of the parts of eating, you know, any of the parts of eating disorders, they're not, they're not practicing. However, they they don't know how to eat. They're terrified of eating because everything's been programmed in their treatment for some of them, sometimes necessary because they need to get nourished, that they haven't learned to trust what their bodies know. And so they're scared to eat in the world and they're scared to go off of their meal plan that they were given because they don't know how to eat. So intuitive eating offers them this wonderful place to land to get to that point where they can trust their instincts and their body's messages in other ways. Yeah, so 
a lot of the criticism comes from this specific idea mm-hmm. of meal plans. So if we're if we're thinking about what intuitive eating is, I mean, and we actually count numbers, hungerfulness is two out of ten. So it's really a small percentage. But if we're thinking about what actually happens for somebody in eating disorder recovery, whether they're at a higher level of care or working with an outpatient dietitian, very often there is either a super structured or a loose structured meal plan, which in their minds completely goes against the hungerfulness piece of intuitive eating. And and we've established that that's not the super most important part and probably not important in the beginning of intuitive eating for someone with an eating disorder. But how does the actual meal plan fit in to intuitive eating, especially in the beginning? Well, interestingly, many years ago, a group of dietitians got together to, they were planning on starting an eating disorder program and they were going to call it intuitive something or other. I have their whole book that they wrote on it. It it never happened, but their process was going to be having, this was going to be residential and people were, or maybe people were attending every day, all day, but still they were getting all their meals there. And for the first two weeks, they were just presented with food. They were just presented with a plate of food for each, you know, for each meal so that they could see visually what it looked like to have, uh, I don't know what use word to use because what is normal, but, you know, kind of enough food to nourish them and as many times a day. So it became a more visual understanding and learning. Oh, that's what a plate of food looks like. It doesn't look like, you know, uh, a tablespoon of rice and, and a tiny bit of chicken. This is what it looks like. And I think that that is the way to begin treatment, not saying you need these many exchanges of this and those many exchanges of that, because so many people who have eating disorders have a bit of, whether it's diagnosable OCD or they do have some obsessive thoughts, maybe not diagnosed, but they get compulsive, they get stuck into that. Maybe before they were counting calories or they're still counting calories or counting grams of this or that. Now they're going to count exchanges. So I think it's much better to just mm-hmm. present the food. People can have preferences. Would you like to have, you know, uh, tofu or chicken tonight? Okay, sure. And come out comes the plate and it has rice and tofu or chicken and vegetables and, you know, a cookie or something. And And that's what a plate of food looks like. I think it's problematic the way some programs you know, give out these very exacting meal plans. And even some of them are having people weigh and measure their food. Well, what does that tell you? There's only the right, oh, yeah, so right? There's only this right way to, to eat and it's got to be this amount. I mean, it's just perpetuating the eating disorder and really doesn't help in recovery. Not everybody's that. There's a lot mm-hmm. of programs now that are more much more open to a different way of doing it. But let's say someone comes out of one of these treatment programs where they have this meal plan. So it takes some time for them to now maybe able to to feel hunger, appropriate hunger signals. And by the way, anytime someone's hungry, that's fine. It's, when I say they can't trust their hunger or fullness signals, obviously, if you're feeling hungry, go for it, eat. It's more the lack yeah. of hunger signals or the the constant mm-hmm. fullness that is not indicative of you know getting enough food. So you know, it takes them time to sort out how are they feeling when they, maybe they're still eating their meal plan. And at this point, they're able to see, oh, when I get almost finished with it, I'm full. Maybe I don't need any more. And learning how to be intuitive about that in terms of noticing that I've had enough and stopping. Also, at the same time, checking in, is this my voice of my eating disorder that's telling me I should stop and leave something on my plate? Mm-hmm. Or is this an authentic sense that my body's giving me? And again, that can't be done in the beginning. It's after someone's fully nourished and eating consistently during the day. And so over time, as they start to live in the world and start eating meals that don't fit in exactly, now they're pretty much ready to eat when they're hungry and stop when they're but sometimes not stop. Maybe they want more because it's really delicious. Maybe there's something that they haven't had an opportunity to have for a while and there it is and they want to eat more of it and to learn not to have shame or blame for not eating exactly to their meal plan. I had a client many years ago who had been in treatment, came out with her meal plan and was doing great. I mean, she was in the world eating intuitively and um, something came up emotionally in her life. I don't remember what it was now. And she started to restrict a bit. 
And her therapist called me and said, I want you to put her back on her meal plan. And I said to the therapist, no, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not how I work. I'm not going to. It's like a medication. I want yeah, her back on the medication. I'm not putting her back, up, back on the meal plan because she knows how to eat. She's just gotten scared and had a moment uh-huh. of, you know, not trusting. And so when the client came in and I said, you know how to eat. Just, you know, and we worked through that and then she was fine. Had I given her the, the meal plan again, it would have taken her back months of recovery because then it would have looked like this is the right way you're supposed to eat, not the way you know, you would like to eat and nothing and things don't have to look perfect. I mean, meals don't have to be dietitian, you know, perfectly balanced every meal. As long as you're getting enough food throughout a week, you're going to be fine. So, yeah, I think a lot of my clients have expressed a lot of discomfort with the idea that their quote meal plan, especially with an outpatient dietitian, doesn't follow what they think a a meal plan looks like, especially if they've gone to a a non-intuitive eating non-eating disorder or dietitian because historically they've gotten breakfast is a half a cup of whatever it is and they're not getting that. So when we say meal plan, it could be a lot looser than what someone's used to. And that could be incredibly anxiety provoking when they're not sure of the specifics and they need direction. Well, and, and the work is about listening to yourself. Let's say one day what you want is a muffin and a pastry for breakfast. Go for it. And then listen, how do you feel? How do you feel an hour later? Are you still comfortably full? How do you feel two hours later? Do you feel like, oh my God, I'm so hungry. I could eat anything around me because my blood sugar, you know, rose with what I ate in the morning. And now it's used, my brain has used up all of that, you know, glucose and now it needs more. Just pay attention. Does that work for you? I'll often give an example that was my birthday years ago. I may have mentioned this the last time I talked to you. And I had a beautiful lemon cake in the refrigerator that I had been given for my birthday. And all I wanted that morning was a big piece of lemon cake. I also noticed there was a chocolate cake in there. And I still to this day don't know how it got in the refrigerator, but I was going to be visiting my son who lives an hour away in you know, freeway driving in California is not fun. And I thought, well, if I just have my piece of lemon cake, you know, my it's not going to hold me very long. My blood sugar might crash. I don't want to crash my car. So I know from my own lived experience that I need more than the cake. I also cut a piece of the chocolate cake and it was so not good. That's part of intuitive eating. It just didn't taste good. So why bother? The lemon cake was delicious. So I added a banana with a bunch of peanut butter on it and a glass of milk and my coffee. And I was good to go. And that held me for, you know, through the trip. I had a snack later. So it's about really tuning in to what your body's telling you and what you need not saying you can't have, you must, you shouldn't have cake for breakfast or you, you know, should have this or that. It's not about shoulds. It's it's about remembering your lived experience. I think that's a very important part of intuitive eating, how it felt when you ate that way. Remembering how your emotions went with when you were having to follow exactly a meal plan. And what are your emotions now around you know, being more tuned into yourself in terms of what is going to be satisfying. And then the practical part of it, is that really going to serve me to like only eat my big piece of lemon cake? No, it wouldn't have served me. Maybe on a different day, maybe if I were staying home, not driving, and that's all I wanted for breakfast, fine, because, you know, there's food and if I was hungry again, if I were hungry again in an hour, there'd be plenty of food around to get. So, you know, you have to look at, at, at what's mm-hmm. happening in your life too and adjust to that. Right. And I think also this is something that for each person, it's going to be individual. Once they're at the point where we can have the conversation about hungerfulness, which like you're saying is way later, do the other things first. Mm-hmm. There's still so many different ways to feel hungry and full and people sort of just gravitate toward like, what does my stomach feel like? And not pay attention to how either obsessive uh-huh. or how much their mind is thinking about food, how much they're interested in food. And other ways that they might be feeling hungry, which are just as valid. I don't ever feel hunger in my stomach. When I was writing one of the books, maybe it was my journal, I don't remember. I was thinking about, you know, they all kind of merge into each other. But um, I was thinking, how do I feel hunger? I had never really asked myself that. I just knew when I was hungry. And I realized never in my stomach, it's it's kind of in my esophagus that all of a sudden I get a signal from my chest in a sense that, oh, I need to eat. Huh. And at that point, if I were to miss that, 
I would go to a point of getting a little unfocused, you know, not being able to concentrate and getting a bad headache, you know, and kind of getting grouchy. Well, that's too long. You know, those may be signs of extreme water. So -hmm. it's looking at, you know, the nuances of it. And at the same time, being practical, there's nothing wrong with using that part of the mind. And I want to, I think this is something that one of your uh, questions uh, addressed, the true definition of intuitive eating, which it's not just quote unquote intuition. It's the dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought from the three different parts of your brain that are, you know, geared toward those those three pieces. So, yeah, sometimes you're just not going to get the instinct. Maybe you're hyper-stressed and your adrenaline's running and you have no hunger. Or sometimes, you know, there's just other things going on. You've got a cold, God forbid COVID. You know, you've got things that are taking away your um, hunger the practical part, the thinking part of your brain has to say, oh, got to eat anyway. It's not going to be as fun to eat with no appetite, but I've got to yeah. nourish my body. So it's it's looking at those things, looking at the fact that maybe you're going, I've got a lot of college students or grad school students who are going to be in school for hours, you know, looking at bringing maybe a snack that they can stick in at some point because, or eating a bigger meal before they go in than they typically might just to hold them a little longer. I mean, there's so many aspects that have nothing to do. Right. And that's also one thing that people say, oh, intuitive eating and and what about time constraints or, or just other things that happen part of life. And like you're saying, intuitive eating doesn't mean you only eat when your intuition exactly. says that you feel like eating and you stop when your intuition, whatever the thing is, tells you to stop. It's about making it make sense in your life that might be incredibly busy. Yeah, there was a there was a criticism of intuitive eating that came from someone who was giving a talk on intuitive eating. I won't go into the details. This is many years ago. Who started the talk by saying intuitive eating doesn't work because I looked up the definition of intuition and it says instinct, and we all know we can't eat by instinct alone. Oh well, yeah, we can't eat by instinct alone because there's emotions and there's thinking that go along with this. And so intuitive eating is not simply reduced to instinct. What you're saying. You know, it's not just my body will know. My body will know a lot of it, but sometimes we have to use our heads to inform our body. Yeah. So so something that I've gotten very, very often, and I'm, I'm trying to like dabble in getting more perspectives and seeing even for myself what I want to believe or not, is the idea of ultra-processed foods or just foods that people say affect either satiety or affect your ability to be in touch with your hunger fullness cues again assuming like we're not talking about somebody who's in the early right. stages of eating disorder recovery and how would that say that's true how would that impact our ability to eat well if you judge the food and think it's bad or wrong that's going to impact you you're going to go oh that's not whole grain so i you know that's as you say ultra processed i can't have that well you're you're going to eat the whole bag of it whatever it is because you're feeling bad that mm-hmm. you made that choice bad about yourself. But if you say, yeah, this is the way life is. Things change in our universe and these foods are available. And if I like the way it tastes, I can have it whenever I want it. And noticing that maybe you don't get fully satisfied if that's the only thing you're eating at a meal. You know, if you're just having a big bag of mm-hmm. whatever, you know, there's these cheese puffs I love that are delicious. They would not satisfy a full, you know, if I'm hungry for a full meal, I'd need other food along with it. So I think a lot of it has to do with the judgment about it and taking away the judgment and this fantasy that people are just going to eat that food and go on and on and on and have more and more bags of it. Well, again, they haven't made peace with food. They haven't really embraced that. Sure, I can have that food if I want it. How much of it do I really want to feel? you know, that it's taking care of me. Well, it's not really taking care of me. So maybe I need more of something else to -hmm. go along with it. Uh, But if we demonize it, then it can never reach that place of habituation. Uh, Habituation being the greater the stimulus, the less the response. So as long as it's somewhat forbidden or, oh, I'm bad, or, you know, diet culture is telling me I shouldn't eat those foods, you're going to want them, quote unquote, crave them forever. But when they're just part of eating, and again, they're simply made up of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and, you know, well, probably no nitrogen because there's no protein in most of them. But um, (laughs) there's some cheese in my cheese puffs. Uh, Anyway, um, once you neutralize it, 
you know, then it's just kind of eventually it's like, oh, I get sick of it. I, I, that's what happens to me. I'll have something that I'm really loving ultra process like that. And after a while, I just, eh, okay, it's there, gets stale mm-hmm. for a while. It's some sort of pretzels I found, or it's something, you know, something else that others would say, oh, no, you shouldn't have that. You know, I have a master of science degree in nutrition. And let me just say that to your audience. I do understand <laughs> how food works in the body. And, um, but I don't judge anything. And so it just kind of takes yeah. its place and it, it never takes a hold of me. You know, I'm always the one who's in, you know, in charge kind of, of, of what I want. And if I really did want to just have a whole bag of those cheese puffs, let's say, for a meal and wanted nothing else, I probably wouldn't feel so good the next day. So I would register that. You know, my body would, yeah. would go, you know, it was maybe my, you know, I'm not so sure about how my gallbladder works at the age I'm at. I'm pretty old. And so, you know, if I had something that was <laughs> um, maybe going to trigger some gallbladder reaction, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe I just, I want to put a handful of it on my plate with other things. So you have to use your wisdom, mm-hmm. your, your, your mental wisdom yeah. along, as well as your body's wisdom. Yeah. I think what a lot of people get tripped up on with this particular argument is, is not really the black or white, not really any end of the spectrum, but more so the in-between. So, so I've gotten this from people and, and I think what's really important, especially as clinicians is, is not to discount or accept someone's lived experience. If this is what they're saying they're experiencing, then then that's what they're experiencing. So yes, we can talk about it, but you know, just to be mindful that people have shared that when their meal includes much more of these kinds of whatever you want to call them, highly palatable on whatever mm-hmm. pop culture has deemed the accurate term for these foods, that they tend to eat a little bit more. And it's not so much like a they're having a meal full of snack and it's not that they're feeling so gross that they don't want to mm-hmm. eat it at all ever again because they, they felt sick the next day. But it's more so, I wonder if I had something different if I would have eaten a little bit past fullness sort of questions. Is my question making sense? Yes, it is. But what the premise is there is that we should never eat past fullness, that we should keep our body mm-hmm. small as they can be, you know, without having any eating yeah. disorder. You know, so what? So what if you eat beyond fullness? Oh, well, you know, we have to really get to the mm-hmm. root of this. Is diet culture really informing them that they shouldn't eat yeah. those foods because you might eat too many of them and you might gain a few pounds? Okay, let's take a look at that. Where is your bias? Where is, you know, what? where are you in the world of social justice in terms of promoting oppression of people in larger bodies? Because you're living your life mm-hmm. trying to keep yourself, you know, maybe not under where your set point is, but keep it at the set point. Don't let yourself get beyond that. That's bad, you know. So we really have to go deeper with that, I think, and see what's, you know, what's the premise of why they're so upset eating beyond fullness. Oh, well. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot more to the story. And when we uncover or peel some layers, there's, there's a lot more there and, and fears and, and how cultural norms has infiltrated people's choices. But I guess it's, it's kind of hard. And I think maybe for my position, I'm not a dietitian. I, I don't have any training in this stuff. So like, I would just remove myself from a debate, but the idea that people are talking about now, and maybe this is more than the individual. It's a a bigger question of metabolic dysfunction and how much it might be connected to what people are eating. And I don't know, what would you say to that? Well, I would say, let's look at... Besides for the eye roll that nobody saw, but was there. (laughs) I mean, research is often very biased. Research is often done by scientists who have an opinion beforehand and find a way to prove their point. Studies aren't necessarily well-controlled or necessarily, you know, long-term. And I just don't really believe that food itself is what's causing, you know, any problems. Now, let me talk for a moment about social determinants of health. Did I mention that the last time we talked? I don't know. I don't remember. Say it again. Let me talk about it. We've got this narrative that what we eat and how we move our bodies is going to determine how healthy we are and how long we live. Okay. 
Social determinants of health, talk about something else. Social determinants of health have to do with, number one, do you have reliable housing? Do you have reliable access of food? Do you have access to medical care? Do you have access to mental health care? Do you have access to education, to socialization? All the social aspects of life. Those are a huge part of our health, those factors, because most of them are connected. And what what kind of stigma do you live with in the world? What kind of oppression are you living with in the world? They have to do with cortisol, with our stress. If our stress is very high, if we don't know how we're going to pay our rent or get the food to pay the, to, to feed the kids or, or you know, not be able to go to a doctor because we don't have health care, the stress is so high, that's impacting our health far more than eating a ding-dong. Not that I like ding-dongs, but and I just heard that, who is it? Smuckers just bought... Twinkie, the company that makes Twinkies. <laughs> it's just a, that's totally non sequitur to yeah. yeah, but anyway. Um, Wait, what? I thought that was a while ago. Did they just recently do that? No, it's just, I just heard on the radio just the other day that it was if Smuckers just bought. I think there were several companies looking to buy them out. And um, oh, I didn't know that anyone wanted to buy Twinkies. I thought that was just being like, all right, we're going to let them fade and die. <laughs> yeah. But, so the, the point is, is that. If those factors that I mentioned are a huge proportion of what contributes to health because of stress, and then you add to it, how do you live your life? Are you someone who's been smoking cigarettes all your life? Are you someone who is using drugs Hmm. or using excessive amounts of alcohol? That's going to impact your health. And then you have to look at genetics and that impacts health. But when you put all those factors into a pie chart, how you eat and how you move your body is only 10% impactful. So that's why that's where the rolling of the eyes about, you know, metabolic problems, they're not caused by my cheese puffs. You know, maybe doesn't have a lot of nutrient density. Yeah. So, so what would you say specifically, uh, the research that, that talks about this stuff, are you saying that, that you just don't believe that it's accurate because there's too much bias and there's, it's just too hard to prove that? Or would you just like sort of discount the study or what would you say to the specific research that's been published? Well, let me say this. I am not the, the research maven in my team, Michael. Okay. My, um, Evelyn is, she will, she could respond to every question about research. I look at autonomy. I look at the bigger picture of mental health. See, that's another piece. People are forgetting about their mental health. So if they're worrying all the time, oh, if I eat that food instead of, and I'll just use the brown rice as a metaphor. Oh my God, what's going to happen to me? You know, I'm going to get these problems. Well, let's say certain studies are accurate. Maybe something does lead to a problem. But if you are spending your life worried about it, what other problems are coming up? And how does that contribute Mm -hmm. to your whole health profile? And I look at the mind-body connection. I look at the vagus nerve and the connection between what's going on in your mind, your anxiety, to things that are happening in your belly and in in your not the belly it's actually in the large intestine the microbiome which controls your immune system our immune system our hormones our production of serotonin 90% of our serotonin is made in the gut wow so you know when you're worrying about those ultra processed foods maybe you're sending a message at, to the microbiome to not, uh, you know, your immune system won't work as well or your hormones get dysregulated or or something. Okay, let's look at those factors. So that's what I'm saying. Even if maybe one particular study shows one particular thing, okay, but let's look at the whole big picture and let's look at mm-hmm. mental health, which is so forgotten when we talk about health. So... Yeah. And I think also, especially coming from my position and I'm assuming your position, we are mostly talking to individuals and how a lot of this information has been incredibly damaging to their life and their relationship with food, their self-esteem, their mental well-being. And even if somebody comes at it from a research, science-based perspective, at the end of the day, even if there is a lot of issues outside of our individual life, A lot of it has to do with something on a much more global scale that cannot possibly be changed by what we're doing in our individual life. Like we can't change the food industry or the government. And we need to put our efforts into feeding everybody, feeding people, not worrying so much about whether this food is going to be bad for you or good for you. 
we've got so much poverty in the world. We've got so much so mm-hmm. lack of access to food. And I know something that we had uh, written to each other about uh, in terms of uh, access to food. I think I think you had a question about that. How does it intuitive eating, you know, mm-hmm. apply to that? Look, the bottom line is. So how does it? <laughs> bottom line is that if you don't have access to food, a reliable access to food, you cannot be mm-hmm. worrying about your hunger and fullness. You cannot be worrying about getting just the exact right meal. The major goal is just get food. And we have a lot of judgment in our world for the mom of three kids who's a single mom and working three jobs and feeding her kids fast food. Oh my God, how is she doing that? Well, yes, congratulations. You're feeding your children. They're getting nourishment in their bodies and you're doing the best job that you can do. So we have to look at judgment Mm -hmm. about that and keep in mind. And pause for a second. Even the mom who's not single, who doesn't have three jobs, like still you have the chicken nuggets on the table, like hooray, best day ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's pull the judgment out of any of this. And um, even your host, going back to your ultra processed foods, they even have their source of energy, actually. They have calories in them. You know, so Mm -hmm. we have to remember that every food can provide some energy to the body better than not eating, which is a lot of people are not eating enough. So anyway, in those parts of intuitive eating, hunger, fullness, making peace with food, that's very privileged. That assumes there's still other parts of intuitive eating that can apply universally in terms of combating diet culture and shame and blame and, you know, learning how to have self-compassion. Intuitive eating is based on compassion and autonomy having your self-compassion for what you're going through, not not beating yourself up for what you're doing. You're doing the best you can do at the moment. And autonomy, make the decisions that are best for yourself. Don't listen to things out there that aren't necessarily going to be helpful for you. Yeah. So maybe I'm a maverick. That's where I am. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think that, you know, obviously we're trying to to tackle some of the criticisms that are coming from people's unique experience. And if we're just taking a question that we've gotten however many multiple times, but we're really taking the individual out of the question, we're just addressing the content and the information, we've, you know, we're doing a general, really a general way of answering the question. And we both understand that it's the person who's asking the question and what is their circumstances that they're asking this question. Well, and that goes back to compassion. It's not only self-compassion, but it's compassion for that person. And what are they Mm -hmm. going through in their life? And what kind of trauma have they had? And I have a client who, um, uh, she asked her mother, the client's in her probably late 30s, she asked her mother, what was feeding like when I was a kid? And her mother said, oh, I used to forget to feed you some of the time. I mean, this person has wow. trauma from not having, you know, consistent uh, attention to her, you know, to her physical needs. There's so many aspects of an individual's life that have to be addressed and what leads to the place they're in now. Maybe someone is very orthorexic, orthorexia meaning just choosing healthy food for the purpose of being healthy, quote unquote. And maybe that person has had so much death in their families, so many people who have died and they they grab on to a thinking, ah, oh, this is the one way I can control this without looking mm-hmm. at genetics, without looking at other social factors. And we have to have right. compassion for everyone and meet them where they are and help them understand where they're, you know, how they're getting to the place they're in rather than, no, you shouldn't do this. And yes, you should do that. Going back to mm-hmm. autonomy. This is not about telling people what to do. It's giving them scientific information so they can make decisions for themselves and psychological yeah. understanding so that they can make decisions for themselves. Yeah, it's interesting. It's reminding me of this book. I wish I remembered what it was called, but this doctor who had a very rare disease that he almost died a few times. Do you know what book I'm referring to? No, I don't think so. Uh, Whatever, it doesn't matter. But anyways, beforehand in college, he was so fit. He used to work out all the time. And then after he went through this whole thing and understanding more about the rare disease that he had, he rarely worked out, even though he was a doctor, because, you know, and most doctors are like, well, working out is like so important for your health. And he almost died a few times. He's like, a couple workouts is really not going to make the, the difference in the genetic mutation that I have in my body. <laughs> you have to put it in perspective and not go into an all or nothing thing. No, it won't make a right. difference in a, in a mutation, but it might make him feel better if he went and took right. some walks around the block, you know, so you don't want to do an all or nothing kind of reaction to anything also. That's true. <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah. And I think that we sort of touched on that, but just to, to drive this point home, people ask all the time, how can the Cheetos, how can the Oreo, how can the pasta, blah, 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 be healthy? And, you know, I think ultimately what we're talking about is the term health is not just about the food that you eat. It's about so, so much more. Right. It's about the mental health. I was, um, I saw something on Instagram this morning and I, I only look at Instagram for the purpose of putting things on my story that other wonderful educated people have created because I don't know how to create them. But there was this adorable little, uh, maybe it was the TikTok, I don't know, of this baby being given an, uh, the taste of an ice cream cone for the first you know, time. And the joy in that baby's eyes and the wanting more of it. I mean, mm-hmm. come on. Let's, you know, let's just take a look at what pleasure, how pleasure is part of this and how when you don't, when you don't demonize foods, they don't take over. Uh, I have a client with the child, her child is like eight now, I think, and we've been working together a long time and she's brought up this child with intuitive eating. And when this child wants whatever she wants, she, it's there. Plus she also loves broccoli and, you know, fish and other things. And when other kids come to play at the house, they run to the cupboard that has all the fun food that they, you know, the play food. And they they can't stop eating it because they're living with families that go, oh no, you know, you, you've got to eat this before you have your dessert. And we really only have dessert two nights a week and, you know, that kind of thing. So talking yeah. about health, this kid's got much better mental health than these other kids that are probably going to end up with some some sort of binge eating disorder at some point or, you know, or sneaking food. So, I mean, let's be a little uh, broader in our aspects of looking at health. And also, is everybody required to be healthy? That's the whole part of healthism. You know, maybe right. you know, it's an individual piece. And what and what factors, uh, what kind of pressure do you have in your life to have to be the healthiest? Sure, it's nice. I'm grateful that I, for the most part, feel pretty healthy in my life. So I can do a lot of things, continue working. And people say, aren't you going to retire yet? No, never. Um, I, yeah, I'm grateful for that, but I also don't believe that I had full, you know, uh, power and control over my health. There's certain aspects mm-hmm. that happen to be that, right. things, things that enhance it. Yeah. Do I move my body? Absolutely. I move my body because it helps make me strong. I love it when I can pick up a box, when I can twist a top off of a bottle that nobody else can. I love being strong. I'll bring my, my pickle jars to you because I can't do that. Please do that. Please do that. Well, I can't open them all. I do have a little thing that helps me out for some of them. But the point is, is yes, it makes me feel good. Last night, I didn't get a lot of sleep. I've got a lot of chaos going in my going on in my house, as I told you about. I'd had a flood in the house. Anyway, I didn't sleep well last night. And I woke up this morning, and what did I want to do? I wanted to walk so that I could clear my head, and it wakes me up. So that's why mm-hmm. I do some of the things I do for an immediate sense of well-being. It's more well-being than health. I like the word well-being more than health. It's a good point. I like that word too. We should probably swap the health because it's just gotten, it's too vague, and, and then now it has bad rap, and yeah, right. it's just not the best usage of the word. Exactly. Okay, in the interest of time... We're going to wrap up here, but before I let you go, where can people find you? Yes. Well, um, I just did mention I am on Instagram, the only social media. I'm going to absolutely get rid of my, what is it called? X now account. I'm so angry with that. You know, that used to be Twitter. What is that? Twitter? Yeah. I'm not, I don't, I'm never on that. I have an account, but I'm going to get rid of that. Uh, I don't go on Facebook, but I am on Instagram, Adelise Resch. And again, I just post things on my story that people seem to enjoy and it helps them. Um, I have a website, EliseResch.com. That's in addition to the intuitiveeating.org website, which is a little more, um, I don't know, clinical, giving some studies and information, you know, about intuitive eating. Mine is a little more personal, my website. I have a number of podcasts. Maybe I've got to get ours on there. Uh, on the on the mm-hmm. website, talk, you know, talks and things like that, and um, explanation, you know, kind of hit my own her- history of how I got to intuitive eating, that kind of thing. So that's EliseRush.com. The intuitive eating is intuitiveeating.org. Where else? My email, EliseRush at gmail.com. If anybody wants to write to me, I tr- do my best to respond to emails, maybe not in the moment. And what are we coming up on the the new editions of what are we up to? One well, of the dates. So, Okay, so um, 
We are writing the second edition of the Intuitive Eating Workbook that came out originally in 2017. So it will come out in 2024 and doing a lot of updates, doing a chapter on social justice, a chapter on incorporating intuitive eating into eating disorder care, updating things like uh, pronouns in the, you know, things that have changed over time. I went through the book and changed every he or she to they. That type of thing, looking at maybe some another reordering of the principles, making sure that the names of the principles, as I say, it's probably going to be reject diet culture versus diet mentality. Uh, We had already changed for the, I think it was for the uh, fourth edition of the Bible, (laughs) the regular intuitive eating book, (laughs) the name of its uh, cope with emotions with kindness change the the old title of that movement mm-hmm. rather than exercise feel the difference so we're looking at a few things there and um when is that one coming out so it probably don't have a, a publication date i think the it has to be final 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 manuscript has to be in march of next year and then it's a while so it'll probably be a little later in 2024 okay so people can still look for the fourth edition then. yeah look for the fourth okay yes oh so all the books, how do they find me? Okay, so there's the fourth edition of Intuitive Eating. The original came out in 1995. Fourth wow. edition came out 2020. There's this workbook that we just mentioned that'll be fine for quite a while. My Intuitive Eating workbook for teens that I wrote myself that came out in 2019 that I absolutely love because I speak to the teen and all of us. I have a very active teen. She's I, I'm aware of her all the time, very rebellious. <laughs> and also I wrote an intuitive eating journal, which some people didn't even realize was different than the workbook because it looked the covers looked exactly the same. So um, I'm talking to the publisher about changing the look of the new one so that people don't get confused. The journals gives a lot of space to reflect, to write, you know, some mm-hmm. prompts. So much more open-ended than the workbook. Yeah, much more open-ended. Okay. And then also the card deck, the intuitive eating card deck, which is really fun. It's like, I look at it as like a tarot card deck. Just pick a card, whatever you feel like. And that's the one that is probably the one you need to focus on. Awesome. Okay, so they can get all this stuff. They can find it probably everywhere, but for sure on the Intuitive Eating website. Uh, Well, I'm not sure if the the website sells the books. I don't think it does. I think you have to buy them wherever books are sold, essentially. Barnes & Noble. Good to know. Barnes & is a good place. Amazon, yeah. But, you know, I like to promote... Not our favorite people. people. Yeah. Your local bookstore, if they have it. Your local bookstore, and I do have, we do have a few here in LA, so. (laughs) All right, well, so good to see you, and thank you again for coming on. You too, lovely, bye. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.